This is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. As I come up on my three-year anniversary of this podcast, I wanted to take it back to my eighth episode with The Billy Porter. And I wanted to play this one over because it's a fantastic conversation that the two of us had then. And to see where we are now is just so incredible. And it's so amazing for me personally to have these documented conversations with humans at different points in their life and even to have part twos and part threes with some of my guests. It's just so exciting to document all of this. It gets me all excited. So I hope you enjoy listening to this originally eighth episode with the Billy Porter. Keep on keeping on. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back with another episode of Entertainment X, and today with me is the Billy Porter. <laughs> the Billy Porter. The. My handle on yes, Twitter sir. and Facebook, T-H-E-E, because I want you to pronounce it right. The. Yeah, exactly. And Instagram, too. And Instagram, They can get you yes. on all that. So let's let's rewind for you and go back to the beginning of time or whatever you want to call it. Um, back to that, was it that second... Sunday in June 1982 when you're watching the Tony Awards. Yeah. Was that, well, we'll talk about that for a second, but was that like, was that your like defining moment for pursuing this or did it come uh, that? That was a defining moment. Yeah. I, I had been in middle school. Um, we were bust. It was desegregation the second time and we yeah. were bust about a half hour away and they had these after school programs and I wasn't really fitting in and I was reading the after school programs and there was something called Risenstein Musical Theater. The school was Risenstein. And I didn't know what theater was. I didn't know what musical theater was. But I went because I thought I could sing there. Mm. And I knew I could sing. Yeah. Um, and then we discovered what a musical was. You know, I auditioned. We did Babes in Arms. It was great. I had fun. But, you know, Rogers and Hart wasn't the way in its original form wasn't the way that I sang in church. So I didn't, I had no reference point to thinking that that could be something that I could do as a profession. And I didn't know it was a profession, you know, like I just, it didn't register. And then I saw the Tony Awards. What did, what do you, what was that moment for you? Did you watch the Tony Awards each following year? Was that like a thing that became almost ritualistic yeah. for you? I mean, yes, like, of course. I, you know, I saw the Tony Awards that year. I saw Jennifer Holliday sing and I thought, oh, well, you could make money doing that. Like that's <laughs> a living, like that looks like a living because they're on TV. Yeah. 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 And it looked like a good living, you know, because it was like, yeah, great. Black Larry. people in gowns and, you know, black people glamorous and mm. on stage and, you know, you just didn't see much of that. Yeah. So I thought, hmm, I think I might be able to do this. And I just immersed myself in any way that I could from That's there wonderful. on out. I was 11. Okay. What did, what did theater do for you in your childhood? It just took me, it, it saved my life. It took me out of my environment. Um, you know, I was in the ghettos of Pittsburgh and, you know, gay and trying the church and, you know, just not feeling like I had anywhere to turn. 
and it just introduced me to a whole different way of life. It introduced me to possibility um, in a way that I had never received it before. Yeah. You know, I, mm-hmm. possibility was talked about, but it was inside of the theater that I understood what my possibilities were. Yeah. You know, um, so yeah. Okay. Did you, okay. So after, after seeing that and after doing theater through your youth, you also, and I think I, I'd heard you say this or read this, that you would start circling auditions that you would have gone to in like, well, I had to first, um, get a subscription to backstage magazine. Okay. So at 15, I got a subscription to Backstage Magazine. Yeah. That was delivered to my house in Pittsburgh. Yes, it and was. I would circle the auditions. Yes. <laughs> that I would have gone to had I lived in New York. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. I yeah. did that. <laughs> and you had, and there was, so this is another interesting question then. So you had two, there was two teachers that kind of forbid you from going to New York or said you shouldn't. I don't know if I'm remembering yes, this correctly or not. I don't know why you know that, but yes. Well, like, you know, it did a little a little bit of homework, you know. <laughs> yes. um, was there any thought of going to school in New York? or was I did like, think about going to school in New York, but I didn't get into NYU. Okay. I got into everywhere else, but I didn't get into, into NYU. Yeah. And I'm glad I didn't get into NYU because Carnegie Mellon was the best place for me. Carnegie Mellon was the better program. Yeah. Carnegie Mellon, at the time, Carnegie Mellon was the better program. Um, and it was less distracting for me to be in Pittsburgh and not in New York so that I could actually finish and get my training, get my training and finish. Like I, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I was less distracted. Yeah. And you would go, well, this is, I love So I'm just going to start repeating stuff that you've already said before, and then we could expand on it continue to do it in this fashion. Um, you would, so you would work here in the city on the summers. Yes. Because you're like, I could work at McDonald's out there or work out here <laughs> yes. because of the theater gigs. Well, yeah, I wasn't I love getting that idea. much work. I love that idea. Like that's just I wasn't booking much work, you know. There wasn't a whole lot of diversity. Yeah. Um, you know, there were clicks for summer stock work out of Pittsburgh, and I wasn't booking anything. Yeah. And I was like, Well, these people are stupid. <laughs> so I'm going to go to New York and see if they're any smarter. Yeah. <laughs> what did you, what was there, what lessons did you learn from being here in New York? Because I know you'd like go to the auditions, right? And you'd work. Were there like life lessons or major takeaways from the those college summers that you were here? Well, yes. The, the biggest lesson was you have to show up for your life. You have to engage. You have to go to the auditions you have to stand in line outside you have to pay your due you know like you got to put your that's time just in. what it is yeah um you know i would sign up non-equity and wait all day that's what you had to do yeah that's what you have to do you know and i find very often i speak to people now and they're like oh i can't do this i can't get anything and I, you know you ask them when their last audition was and they can't tell no you. Rec- yeah, no recollection. Yeah. You know, it's like there are auditions every day. Mm-hmm. It was my favorite thing to do, audition. It's still my favorite thing to do. Why? Because, because there is very often a expectation um, 
people make decisions about you, about what you can and cannot do. Um, and the only space where you get to change expectation or shift people's opinions about you is in the audition room. And so you're, you're speaking, I would say, specifically on like when you walk into the room, what they see versus before you, like after you open your mouth and what they get from you with Both. singing? Both. I mean, yeah. when I first started out, it was just get me in the room and let me, you know, do my thing. Right. You know, once I got in the room and realized that the trump card I had played to get the gig, get gigs, was not actually the path of the trajectory that I ultimately wanted to be on for the long term, mm. um, I had to go back and change everybody's expectation because y'all think I'm this and I'm not. And I'm still doing that, you know? And so what do you, what exactly do you mean by that specifically? I mean, everybody receives me as a clown. Everybody thinks I'm a clown. Hmm. Everybody thinks that I'm supposed to show up, blow the roof off the joint and go to my dressing room and shut the fuck up. That's what people expect. Yeah. And when I realized that that's what was happening, which was in Greece, yeah. 14 inches of orange rubber hair, a space suit, you know, like a clown. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm an actual human being who has stories to tell. And y'all don't want to hear my stories. Mm. You want to hear me scream and holler. But it's not connected to anything. It's not connect. There's no reason for it other than you want me to stop your show. Yeah. So. Like entertainment with no substance. Yeah. And so I had to pull myself out of that trajectory hmm. and change the conversation. Which is difficult. Yeah, very. C continuing. Yeah, very okay. difficult. I didn't work on Broadway for 13 years. Yeah. Okay. We're, yeah, I have... Well, you know, we can even... We can go there right now. So I'm curious, as far as Greece was concerned, how you mentally prepared yourself for the conversation, you know, with your agent, with going forward with that. Because that... Was that... Was I, I didn't, didn't want take to do? it. You didn't want to do I it. I didn't want to audition for it. Yeah. I didn't want to take the job. Yeah. I didn't want to do the job. When I, on the first day of auditions and I saw the, the costume, I was like, this is going to destroy me. Right. I can tell you now, this is going to destroy everything that it is that I am trying to be and do. Yeah. And, you know, my, my agent at the time was absolutely correct in that it got me recognition. Mm -hmm. I was, you know. Yeah. And that Rosie O'Donnell, who subsequently fell in love with me and I was on her show, you know, like it had really, really great things. Yeah. You know, there were really, really great things that came from it and really challenging things that I had to ultimately overcome. So in the end, are you glad you took it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. Okay. Hey, you have no to, regrets. No, yeah. please. It's too short. Life's too short. No, no it regrets is. at all because it actually, it actually forced me to fight for what I want. It helped me define clearly what I wanted and go and fight for that. And 
so what exactly do you mean by what you wanted? I wanted to be a human being. I wanted to be received as an artist, as a human being, not a clown. On and off that stage. You know, and yeah. took a while, but that has happened. Good. That's good. Um, so changing, so changing the, their mindsets you had. So back to like, so Saigon was like your first thing out of mm. college mm -hmm. and you had saying, they said, as for pop rock. So you sang like, it was R and B. And then they said, no, we want I sang pity the child, pity the child from chess. And I sang it my own way because in the music, it says R and B. I mean, in the music, it says ad lib, ad lib means do what you want. Yes. Not what the white man did on the tape mm -hmm. <laughs> from London. Yeah. Ad lib means do what you want. Mm -hmm. And where I come from, that comes as, as off as gospel, that comes off as R and B. If I'm if I'm ad libbing, it's gonna be authentically from the musical genres that have influenced me personally, which there's a lot of theater in it, but there's also more of the other stuff. Right. And then you went back. What was the song you sang for them when they told you to come back and sing something completely different? Nessendorma. And what, how was that received? The back of their heads blew off and I got the job. <laughs> That's how it was received. I don't even know why I asked that question because we all know how it was received. <laughs> I got the gig. <laughs> Before college was over, I got the gig. <laughs> yes, you did. Yes, you did. And then right, so we're going to do a lot of jumping around as you can tell. Right after Greece, you did Merchant of Venice? Yes. That's the thing that nobody remembers. Did that bring you, <laughs> did that bring you temporary relief from the orange hair? Yeah. Yeah, I went from Greece to the Merchant of Venice at the Public with Ron Liebman, who had just come off of winning the Tony for Angel in America. Nobody yeah. remembers that. Yeah. Everybody forgets that part. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what was that experience like? It was just great because it was, it was a step in the direction that I wanted to go. It was a step in, you know, sort of people receiving me. Mm-hmm as a fully formed human being. Mm. Like yeah. I keep saying, the millennial, you know, the clown. It's like, I don't have a problem with being the clown, mm -hmm. but not when it's disconnected to something that's real and human. Yeah. And there's a lot of that that goes on with black, black entertainers, you know? Mm -hmm. There's this tradition of just come and entertain me. Just wow, wow us. And it's like, no, there's way more. You know, but at what cost? There's yeah. always been a cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after Merchant of Venice, is that when, because you were starting to like, uh, I don't even know if I'm going to articulate this correctly. You were starting to create your own path and you were going to go mm -hmm. do your own thing regardless of what, you know, and the, like the money dried up, the opportunities mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. veered away. Mm -hmm. But there were signs that kind of, I, I don't know if I'm re remembering this correctly. There was like acid reflux that was involved. There was like some things that came up. Well, that, that were was kind of like that was in 2000. Okay, you know, so, so we're off. we're skipping from 94. I'm jumping. <laughs> to that's all good. From 94 to you know 2000, I had you know I had a record contract in between that. I had done. Um, you know, Smokey Joe's Cafe. I had gone back to Saigon, which was also a reprieve from um, clowning, you yeah. know, because they finally let me play John in 99. Yeah. And that was really, really 
um, morale boosting for myself. Um, Did it give you hope? Yeah, yeah, I was, it was a lot of hope. And then I moved to Los Angeles because I had booked a couple of movies here in New York and in 99 and we went and they, two of them went to Sundance and I thought, well, let me try my, you know, my record contract had dried up and I just, wa- I just wanted to try something new. And so I went out to Los Angeles in 2000, January 2000. Um, and you know, I don't know, being black and gay and not really interested in lying about it at that time was not really the thing to do. Yeah. So there wasn't much work. There wasn't much opportunity. Um, and I ended up going to grad school in the screenwriting program out there, mm-hmm. you know, um, but nine eleven just messed me up. Yeah. And reflux set in, severe reflux set in, and I started to have vocal problems in a way that I had never had vocal problems. I had always had cords of steel, and all of a sudden I was having vocal problems, you know, for at least a year and a half. I, well, for at least six months, I couldn't even phonate. Like, I, wow. I, I sounded like this for like six months. Yeah. And then it sort of started to get better, um, you know, the talking was hard. The singing was not non-existent. You know, that was difficult. You know, so right, the voice right. was my savior. You know, the voice was my weapon, my savior, everything. And all of a sudden it went away. I have a, okay. I have a few questions on this. Would you say, would you say singing is your spiritual practice? Um, do you have multiple? I have multiple. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's part of it. That is a part of, of my practice. I feel like that was a gift. That was something that I was born with. Yeah. You know, singing, I just could do it, you know? Yeah. Um, but I kept saying I'm more than my voice. I'm more than my voice, but I didn't have the courage to step away on my own. I don't think I had the courage to step away on my own. I really think it was the universe, God, whatever it is you believe in, that kind of set it up to where that had to go away. The voice had to go away for me to then challenge myself to dig deeper creatively. Yeah. I find, I for me personally, I find that signs, because I... I I believe in that, you know, the universe Mm -hmm. gives you answers if you ask Mm -hmm. and they typically get loud, you know, loudest (laughs) before they stop. If you don't Mm -hmm. hear them, you're unhappy (laughs) for a while. Mm -hmm. And so what, would you give anyone advice on listening to signs or is there, is there like, I don't want to say it's a cultivated, but is there any lessons learned from that, that you would kind of like people who are not, maybe Um, not listening to it or struggling with listening to it? You know, fear is an amazing thing, you know, because it will paralyze you forever. And I just think when you hear what the truth is, sometimes it's it's hard to find the courage to act. And if there's any advice I would give is listen 
and find the courage to act on it, to yeah. act on what you're hearing. And I still, I mean, still to this day, I have moments. I just went through some stuff last week where I was like, <laughs> I knew from Being the tested. beginning. <laughs> well, but I just knew from the beginning this job was bullshit. Okay. You know, but I took it anyway because I was trying to whatever, mm. you know, it's hard, you know, because we are wrapped up in, we're freelance artists, you know, so yeah. our livelihood is also wrapped up in our decisions. And sometimes we have to make decisions that are not in our best interest because we need that medical insurance or we need to pay that rent or we need to, you know, so mm -hmm. it's an interesting balance. It is. It's a big balancing act. It is. When you, so when you were back out in LA, those years that passed between doing, what was it Merchant of Venice, Greece, and you went out to LA and you pursued Smokey the, Joe's Cafe. the career. Sorry, I forgot that one. That's all right. Um, you, you got comfortable. I imagine you got comfortable with not knowing the answers or even if not that point in your life. I don't know that I ever got comfortable with not knowing the answers, but I surrendered to not knowing the answers. I surrendered to that open energy and just allowing for whatever is supposed to happen to fall into place. Now that doesn't mean you're not active. That doesn't mean you're not contributing to the space that allows for your focus and your dreams, your ideas to come true. I, I really do know that it was when I got specific. If there's one thing that I can say about how things turned around for me is that I got specific with my dreams, not just I want to work. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Or yeah. I want to be a star, which is naive and narcissistic you know but how can how can you i mean i was watching oprah as i want to do um she's great and then we're talking <laughs> she and maya angelou and a young levant were one day speaking of service and it just hit me it was like oh right service like how can i be of service to something other than my own ego and my own bank account in a profession that is inherently narcissistic. Was that recent, the Oprah com that you listened no, to? That, or was, that, was that was way, way back. You know, it was in the early 2000s. How, how did you surrender? Because you said you, sur you surrendered to... The, is you that just, just like do. you just did? You yeah. just do. I mean, I don't know how. I, I just did. I, there was no other choice. You know? It's, yeah. There was no work. There was no, like, I just had to surrender. Yeah. Yeah. Or die. <laughs> <laughs> or lose your mind. Or, you know, like, it's like. Yeah, going crazy, doing stuff you don't. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. So, um, Kinky Boots has and I, I heard you say this and I love it it has healing properties for the world the show and one moment that comes to mind is Lola and her father with forgiveness mm -hmm. in the 
Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. What did that teach you about forgiveness? And what advice would you give someone about forgiveness? Forgiveness is a daily practice. You know, forgiveness is something that you recommit to every day. You know, um, sometimes I'm good at it. Sometimes I'm not. Mm. Um, You think you're getting better? But that show, yes. But that piece, you know, Miss Lola, I call her Miss Lola, (laughs) my alter ego. You know, there was a space in that where the character had to forgive her father every day. Yeah. That's where I learned the practice of it every day. It's like, oh, it's every day. And sometimes I wake up and it's easy to recommit to the forgiveness. And sometimes I wake up and I just want to rail and you know, break things before yeah. I get to forgiveness again. But, you know. It's learning. Yeah. yeah. Every day. Um, so through, through Lola, what did that teach you about leadership? Lola is, hmm, that's very interesting. That's a great question. Um, say the question again. Through playing Lola, what did that teach you about leadership? Well, it taught me to own my own spot and position in this industry, in this world, as a leader. I've always been a leader. And when you you look different, when you present differently, from all of the other leaders that have come before you, Mm. there's a lot of pushback. And there's a lot of denying. There's a lot denying it. There's a lot of dismissal of of a person. Um, And I just have spent a lot of time embracing, trying to embrace that and own that. that I am a leader, that I am a trailblazer, and the things that yes. I've done, and the things that I've done, nobody else has done, you know, shit like that. Yeah. And it's like to honor that without narcissism, to honor that through service, through service is really special. And that's what Lola felt like. That's what Kinky Boots felt like. You know, I don't yeah. feel like, I feel like had I not chosen the road less traveled and honored my own truth in the face of no work, bankruptcy, you know, um, on the precipice of obscurity for over a decade, you know, people were done, you know, it was over. My time had come and it didn't happen. And a lot of people felt like, well, you know, um, Mm. You know, to reemerge in this spot. Yeah. You know, and to not be afraid of it. You know, because with as far as we've come in the conversation in terms of diversity and difference. The unspoken, and especially with gay people, LGBTQ people, you know, 
it's still better if you're straight. The end. Mm -hmm. It's still better. It's popular at the moment. It's trendy at the moment to be gay and out and blah, blah, blah. But it's still better if you're straight. Hmm. And that's really, you know, when one knows that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's really difficult to surrender to the idea that every room you walk into, you're at a deficit simply because of your sexuality. Every room you walk into, even the ones with the gay people. Huh? Because they're so, because many of them are so interested in, I found, not everybody, but I found that oftentimes they live in the world where straight is still better. So give it to the straight man and people will come. What is give the part to the straight man and people will come to see it. Yeah. You know, no, no tea, no shade, but just, you know, it's like living in it's, it's just kind of factual. Yeah. In a terrible way. When you were performing on stage, could you feel that pushback from the audience? From in what? Like so what they come they come to expect something from Billy Porter. If they don't know the show, they don't know the story, they sit down, they're like, Okay, we're gonna expect something and then you kind of flip it on its head with because there's so much more depth yeah. to the show than like I don't know. When we yeah. first did it under Obama, it was less. You know, it was more like we were preaching to the choir, okay. especially in New York. You know, there were always the changing of hearts and minds. But the general spirit was of acceptance in that microcosm of that eight years. Um, yeah. Going back in the last incarnation, it was very different. I could feel the I could feel the panic panic yeah it's panic i could feel the terror i could feel the panic i could feel the just everybody's just panicked everybody is in a space of panic everybody's in a space of what the fuck is going on what is happening how did this happen what happened yeah. you know and so that's just that's not simply about kinky boots it's about everything so people come in with all that baggage that they didn't have before did that strengthen your did that strengthen your service as a leader? Yeah. With having that, I mean, greater panic, yeah. you know, in the house, even I when mean, you're doing I mean, it's nice to be able to speak directly to that, speak directly to the fear, hmm. people's fear. You know, fear is what fuels hate. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another curiosity conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. <laughs>